Greetings. Uh, wonderful to see all of you. It's good to be back, having been away for, well, sort of away, not in heart. Thanks also to Chuck and Randy for filling in over the last few weeks. It's wonderful to see all of you and to worship our great God together. I invite you to turn in God's word to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. Uh, I should note, just make a comment here at the beginning, uh, that we are skipping over the section from 753 to 811. Most uh, Bibles, you'll find that section bracketed off. My ESV, for instance, it says that the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. Uh, basically, this portion of John shows up in late medieval manuscripts, uh, but isn't there in the oldest and best Greek manuscripts that we possess. Uh, many of the early church fathers, when commenting on the Gospel of John, would jump from 752 to 812, indicating no awareness of that text. Uh, so the, the consensus among conservative, Bible-believing scholars, evangelicals, is that, or I, I shouldn't say consensus, the, the broad leaning of most evangelical scholars is that it's not original. It's still there because it appears in the King James Version of the Bible, and so it was in our English Bibles for a while, and, you know, people are reluctant to dispense with it for that reason, but that's why it's sort of bracketed off from the text. Uh, if you want to know more about this, the first time you've heard about something like this, uh, please talk to me afterward. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, it, you know, I think if you're going to be unsettled about these issues, it's best that you be unsettled in the church, where we can work through these things constructively, rather than maybe the college classroom. So this is a good place for us to work through these issues. Talk to me afterward if you are that way inclined. But leaving that issue aside, turn to 8, 12 through 30. 8, 12 through 30, and let's hear God's word together. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to, you the, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, 
and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you on this weekend of thanksgiving, and we give thanks to you for all the good that you have done to us and for us. Father, we thank you for the many blessings of this life. We thank you for the food that you put on our table day after day. We thank you for the homes that we live in. We thank you for the family uh, that you have granted to us. We thank you for the precious gift of the fellowship of the church, the fellowship of your people. And Father, we thank you supremely for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood that we might be washed of the guilt of our sins and reconciled to you. We thank you today for the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life. And for this reason, Lord, we rejoice in your presence. Father, we also confess that we will always and inevitably be unresponsive to your truth apart from the illumination of your Holy Spirit. So we ask this morning that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, Father, and cause us to see the beauty and glory of our Savior Jesus and respond with faith and obedience. Cause us to see the truth about who you are and who we are in this passage and respond in faith, we ask. Amen. So we all recognize that relationships can't function without trust. Uh, Marriages, friendships will fall apart if the parties of those relationships don't have a a basic trust in one another, if they don't view each other as trustworthy. Well, the the same thing holds true in our relationship with God. Where there is no trust in God, there is no relationship with God. Uh, The challenge for God's people at every step of uh, the biblical story is, will they accept God's word? Will they trust him? And so we see this with Adam and Eve at the very beginning. God gives them a world full of yeses, but one no, one prohibition. He says, don't eat of that tree. And they're faced with a challenge. Are they going to believe that God knows what is best for them and wants what is best for them and submit? Are they going to trust him? Or are they going to live according to their own wisdom and decide what is best for themselves? And of course, we know that they failed and in failing brought misery to the rest of mankind to us. Uh, Abraham was confronted with this challenge. Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. And in his old age, God said to him and to Sarah, you're going to have a child, a son. And a great nation will come from you. That promise is made uh, long after Abraham and Sarah are physically capable of having children. And so there's a basic contradiction between their circumstances and the promise of God. What will they believe? Will they trust God's word or their circumstances? We come to Israel. And through Moses, God gives his law to the nation of Israel. And he challenges them, will will you trust me that my laws are right and good? Will you submit to me and walk in my ways? Or will you walk in your own ways? And of course, the story of Israel is one of persistent rebellion. And then we get to the generation in Jesus' day, the Jews in his day. And they are confronted with God's final, best, and ultimate word, not simply through a human prophet, but through his own son, Jesus Christ. And in this passage that we looked at, Jesus bears witness to himself, and the people of his day are confronted with that age-old dilemma. Will you trust me, 
or will you go your own way? And it's not just that original audience that is confronted with that dilemma. Every single person here this morning who hears the words of Christ is confronted with that same challenge. Will you accept my word and submit? Will you trust me? Or will you reject it and go your own way? That's the challenge that we are confronted with this morning as we look at the words of Jesus Christ. There are four things I want us to notice as we look at this passage. First, I want us to notice Jesus' witness about himself. Jesus' witness about himself. Second, the trustworthiness of his witness. The trustworthiness of his witness. Third, I want us to notice the result of rejecting his witness. The result of rejecting his witness. And fourth, I want us to see the high point of his self-revelation. The high point of his self-revelation. So here in verse 12, uh, Jesus says something about himself that is utterly beautiful. This is the second of the two I am, uh, I'm sorry, this is the second of several I am statements of the Gospel of John. This is the second time that uh, he uses this, this expression. In chapter 6, we, Jesus tells us that he is the bread of life. Here in chapter 8, he tells us, um, I am the light of the, the world, the second I am statement in the Gospel of John. Now, we need to read this statement about himself against the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacle, uh, Tabernacles or Booths. Um, at one point in this feast that was being observed at this time when Jesus was speaking, there would have been these four lamps in, in the temple precincts, in the, te- in the court of the women. These four massive lamps that at night would have been set ablaze, Uh, And there would have been celebration, pious men would have been dancing with torches and singing, and the Levitical choir would have been cutting loose, and a good time would have been had by all. Uh, This was a celebratory moment. The light is dispelling the darkness. And Jesus seizes upon this occasion to say, against that backdrop, I am the light of the world. Without me, the world is engulfed in darkness. Without me, your life is engulfed in darkness. But I've come to bring light. I've come to bring the light of revelation and the light of salvation. Jesus is the light of the world in the sense that when we see him, we behold God's final and fullest revelation of himself. There is nothing un-Jesus-like about God, as one theologian said. Here at last, God shows us what he is really like in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. There is no knowledge of God apart from from the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. He is the light in the sense that he perfectly and climactically reveals God to us. And he is the light in the sense that the light of salvation shines in him. In him we find healing, forgiveness, and acceptance before God. Jesus is the light that shines in in our darkness and frees us from bondage to sin, slavery to evil, that we might increasingly walk in the light, walk as children, of the light. The prophet Isaiah, whom Chuck quoted earlier, uh, speaks of the servant of the Lord, which is ultimately a prophecy about Jesus. And Isaiah says, 42, 6 through 7, I am the Lord. The Lord is speaking through Isaiah. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, 
from the prison, from the prison of those who sit in darkness. Jesus came that he would open the door to the dungeon of sin that we live in and take us by the hand and bring us out to the light of God, uh, to bring us back into fellowship with the Father. We see that light of salvation shining brightly in him. And because that's who he is, whoever follows him, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Whoever walks with Jesus doesn't walk in the darkness. Darkness here includes a state of separation from God. Those who don't have Jesus don't have God. They are living in opposition to him. Their relationship with him is severed. God is, of course, the fountain of life, and we can only know true joy and real life by being in his presence and having a relationship with him. Every earthly delight and pleasure is just a faint whisper of the ultimate delight and life that is in the presence of God. The essence of our misery as fallen men and women apart from Jesus is that we've lost God. And nothing in the world can compensate for that loss. That's what it means to walk in the darkness. It means to walk without hope and without God. To be cosmically orphaned, if you like. Separated from our Heavenly Father. But to walk in the darkness also means to be evil and do evil. To live in a state of rebellion against God's good and wise and holy will. Uh, from one vantage point, it is to fail to love God and others. We were, that's what we were made for as human beings. To love God supremely and to love others, and, and out of large hearts, generous hearts, to adore our Creator and live a life of service to the people around us. But in, in our fallenness, our hearts have shriveled up, and we're selfish, consumed with number one, with ourselves. Uh, anybody who gets in our way, look out. Uh, to be in the dark is to be a slave to self, in bondage to evil. And of course we know to be evil is also to be miserable. Miser morally corrupt people are not happy people. Some of the greatest heartaches that we've experienced in our lives are the self-inflicted heartaches, aren't they? The foolish decisions, the wicked decisions that we've made. How many relationships or friendships have been lost in life because of your pride and your stubbornness and your refusal to forgive? How much sorrow have we known and how much joy have we lost because of untamed lust? Like we know the sorrow that comes from living in the darkness. Without Jesus, to live in a life of rebellion is to be miserable. But Jesus says whoever comes to him, whoever follows him, won't live in the darkness anymore. Instead, they will have the light of life. That phrase refers to the life-giving light. He's the light. He brings God's revelation and salvation to mankind. And all those of us who receive him, believe in him, experience not darkness, but life. Our relationship with God is restored and we delight in his presence. We experience the peace and joy that come from walking with him and not walking apart from him anymore. Uh, we experience life in the sense that we are increasingly freed from the control of sin and the darkness in our lives, and enabled to walk in obedience to God, Jesus is able to make, uh, to make all of us new men and women, men and women who are capable of loving others, who are capable of living wisely, who are capable of acting to restore relationships, not break them. That's the life that he imparts. That's who he is, and that's what he does. 
the, the challenge before us today is, to, is whether we are going to look to Jesus for life or look to something else for life. Are we going to trust what he says about himself, that he is the light of life, and say, Jesus, I'm coming to you to experience the joy and the peace that come from knowing God? Or are we going to seek life in something else? That's the dilemma. Many hold back from following Jesus because they think that they're going to find life in all of its fullness in something other than Jesus. Some relationship, some cherished sin. And so they don't listen to Jesus when he says, I'm the, one, the only one who can give you life. But ultimately, to choose anything other than Jesus is a spiritual dead end. It's self-deception. That thing that you think is going to bring you joy and satisfaction will ultimately fail you and bring misery instead. The only path to lasting life and joy and peace is Jesus Christ. And all of us are called to look to him for the life that satisfies. So that's who he is. That's the testimony of Jesus about himself. Second thing to notice, though, is that that testimony is true and valid. The Pharisees didn't think so. Uh, They said, well... You're the only one bearing witness about yourself. You're the only one saying these things about yourself. So what you say isn't true. Uh, There there was this recognition uh, grounded in the Mosaic law that for someone's claim to be considered true, you needed two witnesses. Um, That's how you differentiated between truth and falsehood. You're the only one saying this, Jesus, so what you're saying is false. And Jesus responds to them by saying, it's my unique identity that validates my claim. It's because of who I am that what I'm saying is true. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Why? For I know where I came from and where I am going. What he means is I've come from the Father. I am his heavenly messenger. In fact, I am God incarnate. I am returning to the Father. And because I am the one who has come down from heaven, because I am the Son of God, speaking to you. This is not the testimony of an ordinary person. This is the testimony of God, and it needs no higher corroboration. It is self-authenticating and self-vindicating. With, with ordinary people, if you want to uh, test someone's claim, you go to a third party, right? And you say, hey, is it what this guy said true? Can you corroborate it? But Jesus is saying, because of who he is, the unique son of God who became flesh, there is no higher court of appeal that we can go to to corroborate his claims. His claims are the highest possible claims because he has the very authority of God and we ought to acknowledge them as such. The problem, Jesus goes on to say, is actually not with me or with my testimony. The problem is actually with you. You do not know where I come from or where I am going. So you don't see my unique identity as having come from God and going from God. Why? You judge Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. The idea here is that as they're making their assessment of Jesus, they are doing so from a position of moral corruption. Uh, Throughout the Gospel of John, flesh and spirit are contrasted. To be able to see spiritual truth, we need God the Holy Spirit to show us that truth. And so to say that they, they are making this judgment according to the flesh is to say that they're, they are make, they're making up their minds about Jesus from a place of moral rebellion against God. And because of their evil, unbelieving hearts, they're coming to the wrong conclusion about him. They're not able to see the truth. This is a theme in the Gospel of John, and indeed in Scripture. If you have a dark, evil, unbelieving heart, 
It doesn't matter how bright the truth of God shines all around you, you won't see it, your eyes are closed. And the problem with them is not that they didn't have enough information. The problem is not that they needed more facts and information about Jesus. The problem is that they had dark hearts and couldn't see what was in front of them. I want you to understand this morning that if you look at the claims of Jesus, and they seem unlikely, implausible, or even false, understand that you are coming to that conclusion, not finally because the evidence has caused you to go in that direction. You are, you are coming to that conclusion because of the evil inside of your heart. The truth of Christ shines all around you, but your eyes are closed. And until God the Holy Spirit performs a miracle in your heart and gives you eyes to see, you will remain blind. What that should do is that should, frankly, bring you to a place of desperation, to recognize how utterly impotent you are to see the truth in Jesus and to cry out for God to produce this miracle in you, to give you eyes to see that you might respond to the testimony of Jesus Christ, that you might respond to his message. That's everybody, by the way, without the Holy Spirit. Blind, unable to see the truth that's standing in front of them. So, Jesus' first part of his response to their objection that he alone is bearing witness is to say, well, because of my unique identity, that identity validates my claims. But there's a second aspect to his response. He says, look, you want two witnesses? I'm one witness, I bear witness, and the Father also bears witness to me. Verse 17, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now, they think he's speaking about his human father, so they say, present your father. Of course, Jesus is speaking about his heavenly father. That heavenly father, God the father, is witnessing to the son. But here's the interesting thing. The witness of the father to the son doesn't happen independently of the son's witness to himself. The father witnesses to the son through the son's own witness to himself. So deeply one are the Father and Son that when the Son speaks, the Father speaks. They speak with one voice. So to access the Father's testimony about the Son, you have to accept the Son's testimony about himself. It's paradoxical. Look what he says in verse uh, 19. Where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. If you believed in me, you would be able to know the Father and vice versa and access his testimony. So the Father and the Son Witness together. The Father witnesses through the witness of the Son. You can't, as it were, go above the Son's head to the witness of the Father. The Father witnesses through the Son. But Jesus' words here help us to understand the great wickedness of unbelief. When we reject the words of Jesus, we are not simply rejecting the words of an ordinary man. We are rejecting the words of the Creator. We are rejecting the words of God Almighty. God had spoken to his people in the past through human prophets. It was a great evil, for example, for the Israelites to reject the word of Moses because God spoke to his people through Moses. Great sin. How much more wicked, though, is it to reject the word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ? God in Christ has spoken his final, best, climactic word, word rather, to mankind. In Jesus, we get God's final statement of who he is and what he's come to do. And so it is infinitely evil to reject 
the witness of the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, to himself. If you think about it, when you reject someone's claim, you're implicitly also commenting on their character. So, for example, if you come to me and you say, I had Thanksgiving this week with my family, and I say, no, you didn't. I'm not just rejecting your claim. I'm implying you're a liar, right? I'm disparaging your character even as I'm rejecting your claim. Well, that's exactly what we do when we disbelieve Jesus. We're not just rejecting his claim. We're saying, Jesus, you're actually a liar. And implicitly, God is a liar. And we are trampling his glory and honor underfoot. Unbelief is a serious sin. Uh, Unbelief is is an act of contempt for God. It is a refusal to allow him to tell us what is true. It is to call into question his trustworthiness and to rely on our own wisdom and understanding. Third thing to note then is the result of rejecting God's testimony or Christ's testimony. The result of rejecting his testimony. Uh, Verse 21, Jesus tells them, I am going away. And by that, he refers to the fact that he's going back to the Father. He came from the Father, he's going back to the Father. I'm going away and you will seek me. They will seek him in the sense that they'll keep looking for the Messiah. The Messiah was God's promised king. Jesus is that king. They've rejected the only Messiah there is. As a result of rejecting him, they're going to keep looking for the Messiah elsewhere. And of course, not ultimately finding him because Jesus is the Messiah. So you'll seek me. And in one of the most grim statements of scripture, he says, you will die in your sin. You will die without your sins pardoned or atoned for. You will carry the accumulated guilt of a life of sin and rebellion with you into the very presence of God. You will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. I'm going to the Father, and you can't come there. And the Jew said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? They're, they're perplexed, like, okay, so you're going someplace we can't get at you? Does that mean you're going to kill yourself? What do you mean? Jesus tells them why they can't come to where he's going, verse 23. He said to them, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. In uh, the Gospel of John, world typically refers to mankind and its rebellion and opposition to God. And he's saying it's precisely because you are rebels. It's, beci- it's precisely because you live in opposition to God that you can't come where I'm going. You can't come into the presence of God. Unless you believe in me, unless you trust in me, you're going to die in your sins and you will never go into the presence of the Father. You will be separated from him. Verse 24 helps us to understand exactly what it is Jesus came into the world to do. Jesus didn't mainly come into the world to make our lives just a little bit better, giving us our best life now, or to give us like, a better purpose to live for. There's, a, there's an element of truth in those things. But fundamentally, Jesus came into the world so that we would not die in our sins, so that we would not perish, so that we would not finally be condemned before the judgment seat of God. It's a tragic thing to come to the end of your life, to die, be put in that casket, and nobody comes to your funeral. It's a tragic thing for a life to go unmourned, unremembered. But it is an infinitely more tragic thing to die in your sins, to carry that accumulated guilt from a a lifetime of rebelling against the Creator, to carry that guilt with you into the world to come, to stand before the judgment seat of God and to be declared guilty. 
and then to be cast out of his life-giving presence forever, to be subjected to his judgment and to his punishment forever. Jesus is saying that the fate of every single person who does not trust in him as their savior is to perish, is to be subjected to eternal punishment away from his presence. And so this morning, I want to warn all those of you who are not trusting in Jesus, that whatever self-evaluation you might have, that's the path that you're on. You're on the path that leads to everlasting sorrow and everlasting separation from God. But it doesn't have to be that way, is the good news that we're talking about this morning. Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and me. Jesus came into the world to die for our sins so that we might not die in our sins. If we receive the gift that he's given us, death holds no terror. Death is not the end for the believer, but the beginning. On the other side of death, for those who believe in Jesus, is not judgment and condemnation and punishment. On the other side are the open arms of our Heavenly Father. That's true for all those who trust in Jesus. They will not die in, your, in their sins. You will not die in your sins if you trust in Jesus. You have life with God, life in the world to come. That's the result of believing in him. And finally, Jesus tells us where the ultimate truth about him, the, the truth about him is finally displayed most fully. Notice in verse 24, he says, unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. Okay, and so naturally the question is, well, who are you? Verse 25, so they said, who are you? And Jesus responds by saying, I'm the one, I've been telling you all along who I am. I am the one sent from heaven to speak the words of the Father. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Uh, that's who I am. But he, but he then says in verse 28, if you want to know the truth about me, you need to look at the cross. Notice the parallel in verse 28 between um the parallel between verse 24 and verse 28. Uh, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son, then you will know I am he. He says you have to believe that I am he, verse 24. Believe that I am he and you'll have life. And then here in verse 28, he's, he's explaining who he is, but he's explaining who he is in terms of being lifted up. He says, if you want to know who I am, you know where you should look? The moment where I am lifted up. And this is a reference, of course, to his crucifixion where he is lifted up on the cross. If you want to know who I am, if you want to know what I'm like, if you want to see my glory shining in all of its brilliance, look at the cross. This is a repeated emphasis in John's gospel. That is the truth about the Son of God. When we look at the bloodied and bruised body of Jesus hanging there on that cross, forsaken by God and forsaken by men, we see who he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Savior who loved us to such a degree that he came into this world to die in our place, to bear God's wrath and condemnation that we might be pardoned. That is the truth about Jesus Christ. There on the cross, we see the depth of his love. We're not lovely. There's nothing intrinsically good about us, but Jesus is so good that he loves the unlovely, and he came into this world to give his life away so we might be pardoned and reconciled to God. That's who Jesus is. And the truth about him shines most brightly at the cross. And the question this morning for each of you is, will you accept that testimony? Will you receive it and thereby receive the light of life and turn away from walking in the darkness? Or will you reject it? And can you continue walking in the darkness 
until you finally perish? That's the question. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are recipients of your grace and so thankful that in love you gave yourself for us. Thank you for having cleansed us of our sins and brought us to God. Only you know, Lord, the terrible price that you paid for us in bearing the wrath of God for our sins, but we give you thanks and praise for having done so. And we pray that our hearts would not remain hard and cold toward you, but that the truth of the gospel would soften us, make us responsive, and cause us to live more and more for you. Amen.